Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Nisha Winters. It was so much fun to speak to her, as you will hear how passionate she is about helping others heal from cancer. Dr. Nisha is a global healthcare authority and best-selling author in integrative cancer care and research, consulting with physicians around the world. She has educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. Dr. Winters is currently focused on opening the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health, a comprehensive nonprofit metabolic oncology hospital and research institute in the United States where the best that standard of care has to offer and the most advanced integrated therapies will be offered. This facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus against a backdrop of regenerative farming, green building, and restorative amenities, EMF mitigation, and retreat, as well as state-of-the-art medical technology and individualized data assessment to employ the right therapies at the right time to improve patient outcomes. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Nisha. But before I do, just a reminder, head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. Hi, Dr. Nasha. Thank you so much for coming on the Cancer Liberation Project. I am so looking forward to our time together today. Oh my gosh, Haley. It's amazing. We were just saying before you started recording that we've had such an interesting parallel path and experience. So I'm very thrilled to be with you and your listeners. Yes, it's incredible. And I do want you to start with just telling your story because it is such an amazing story. You know, it's, it's so funny now that I just hit 30 years in October, 2021, which is just strange of, of a moment when you, I can remember back, you know, I was, I was night, it was summer before my uh, 20th birthday. So my birthday is September 30th. Um, and it was summer of 1991 and I was in and out, you know, I had all these health issues prior to, like I had was diagnosed with endometriosis at 11. I had cervical dysplasia at 14. And again, at 16, I had IBS patterns, polycystic ovarian syndrome. I was diagnosed with, um, you know, put on birth control pills at 11 for my severe endometriosis. I mean, just one giant, like digestive mess. And I had polycystic ovarian syndrome, massive cystic acne on my face and my chest and my back and my arms. And so I like, but, but because you could just put on a certain amount of base and cover it up. And because I was a teenager and relatively young and healthy, I could go out and, you know, run my way, sports my way through it. And 
put on the mask of life and get through it and just sort of deal you know, eating aspirin and Tylenol and ibuprofen. Like there was no tomorrow. And just like, you just don't know, you just kind of bandage it and keep on keeping on. So when I spent the summer in and out of the ER over and over, which is like pain that I can't even begin to describe of pelvic pain, which you alluded to in your own history, they were like, Oh, it's just your endometriosis. Oh, it's just that you have a UTI. Oh, here's some antibiotics. Oh, now you have a raging yeast infection because of that. I mean, it was just like one thing. Then they're like your histrionics. So here's some anxiolytics. I mean, I ended up like at my mom's office, stuck in a corner, crying my eyes out, thinking I'm losing my mind because of a single dose of Xanax that they gave me. And it's like, you know, I now know that I have epigenetic SNPs that make my pharmacogenomics not responsive to medications like that. It makes me even crazier. So I went through these months and months of just thinking it was more of the same of what I was dealing with. And I'd had some pretty intense uh, stressors and um, traumas in my youth on the adverse childhood events score of 10 um, events that you could have been exposed to before the age of 18. I was a 10 out of 10 on that scale. So I, I knew I had trauma. I knew I had these issues and I'd had a particularly traumatic year leading up to my diagnosis. But by the time I was basically unresponsive. My roommate took me, rushed me to the emergency room. I couldn't breathe. I was super uncomfortable. I was so bloated. That's how completely clueless I was. I ended up what they, what that bloating was, was something known as malignant ascites, which is a buildup of fluid in the wrong parts of your body in my abdomen to the point of over eight liters I had in my abdomen and they couldn't take it all out at once or it would have killed me. It would have thrown off my electrolytes even further. I was an end-stage organ failure. My kidneys had shut down, my liver shut down. I had a bowel blockage, small bowel obstruction. Um, I was severely cachectic, so severely muscle-wasting, malnourished. Um, my oxygen levels were in the seventies. I had fluid buildup in my abdomen, but also in my lungs and around my heart. So I was having stress on my heart. I had this major arrhythmia happening. They were so fearful. I wouldn't even live through the night that they just kept me under observation. Um, it was also because I'd been in and out of the hospital. I luckily met with a, an ER doc that was a visiting ER doc. So I had someone different finally. So someone who saw me through a fresh set of eyes and who did appropriate lab workup and appropriate imaging at that time, it was just an MRI that was available in the clinic where I was. And that's when he came back in, in tears himself. It was 19. It was just a week shy of my 20th birthday and him telling me, in tears because he had a 19 year old daughter himself that he suspected I had um, an ovarian mass, a grapefruit size ovarian mass, my right ovary. And you could tell I had lesions in my liver. I had lesions all throughout my abdomen. Um, I definitely have malignant ascites because they pulled some of the fluid and it was bloody discharge from that. And he said, it's going to take a few weeks for us to get the biopsy results back, but this is my best guess. My CO125 was over 15,000. And he basically cried and said, you're an in-stage um, ovarian cancer. You have less than three months to live with treatment. Now, as a doctor today, knowing this, I probably had less than three days to live with where I was um, because of everything that was going on. And so they kept me monitored overnight just to make sure that my fluid imbalance um, from taking out that much fluid was going to not just kill me right then and there. I had to keep going back for many months, um, actually, to keep getting fluid pulled, 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 because it would fill up very quickly. But it was thanks to the ability to fast, which I didn't know. I didn't have a choice because every time I put something in, I would throw it back up or it would cause excruciating pain. I ended up fasting for two and a half months, Wow! which is what helped resolve my fluid, which helped resolve my um, obstruction of my, of my gut 
you know, the small bowel obstruction and frankly, righted the ship enough for me to get very clear because I had to quit school at that time. I had to quit some of my jobs. I just had to lay low um, basically through the fall of 1991 and full expecting to die. As you and I talked about before this, I was told I was going to die within a few months. They told me I probably wouldn't see, you know, much into the new year. And it was because I was so sick and everything was so done. They were like, you can't even do chemo. So they sent me for a second opinion um, oncologist who gave me the same opinion. Um, And I was still too, too sick at that time. And so basically I was left to my own devices. And I, as people have heard me say, I had no expectation of surviving, but I wanted to understand why. Mm. And that curiosity is what keeps me going even today. So I somehow accidentally no thought. Remember, this is pre-Dr. Google, you know, this is still the daily decimal system and all of that. I literally was kicking the can down the road just far enough for me to learn another piece of information, learn another piece of information, learn another piece of information, information. That's how it's been for me for 30 years. I've been on this little educational gathering journey, um, made some wrong moves along the way. I definitely it took me about 10 years to stabilize the process. People always are shocked to hear that. And that gives people hope. Like, yeah, you know, it's not just a quick fix. God, no. And I think because they see me 30 years out, it took me about 10 years to stabilize the process. And then even in the 20 years following that, I've had a few, I call them flares um, of experiences where they're my absolute reminder, my built-in alarm system that says you're not taking care of yourself. You're putting everything and everyone else first. You're letting that trauma or drama get into you physiologically. You're not, you know, dealing with the traumas and the stress appropriately. And so they're my little alarm systems when those moments go off. And so it is an ongoing journey. Once we've been diagnosed, especially with a late stage cancer, it's a life, it's a lifelong journey. And every day is a bonus day for me. Every year is a bonus year. Every birthday is celebrated with such you know, joy and gratitude of still being here. So I love that. And I know it's a long story, but it's like, I want people to recognize it doesn't happen overnight. You didn't get sick overnight, but I also didn't get well overnight. And I still would say that I'm, I would never call myself cured because I don't believe in that. That also throws people off. There's no such thing as a cure for cancer. The only cure is prevention of it expressing because we all have cancer all the time. And so I live with a manageable disease process, just like somebody with diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And guess what? You can make it so that you can live a long life and die something other than cancer at the end of this long journey. Um, and I'm, I'm living that. I'm living testament to that. And I've had tens of thousands of patients I've personally guided through this process and, uh, you know, a hundred doctors I've guided through guiding their thousands of patients through this process and, and so on. And so it's a constant learning curve every day. In fact, my call that I was on right before this was someone else who has some really compelling ideas for the oncology world that I'm just cannot wait to dive into his theories and his ideas because we're learning things new every single day. And it gives me the ability to keep going and keep learning. If it doesn't apply to me, it'll apply to somebody else. If it doesn't apply to that person, it'll apply to somebody else because there's not one size fits all with this approach. Exactly. I mean, you know, there's so many diets obviously out there. Should I go gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan? It goes on and on and on. And so, you know, I'd love to hear your approach I know the audience would would absolutely love to hear it. 
Sure. Well, it's funny when I was first diagnosed, I mean, my, from age 13 until 18, my job was at the hot dog on a stick in my local mall. And because I came from poverty, we were very, very poor. Um, my five meals a week. So my five days of working a week, because I worked full-time while I was in high school. Um, I ate, you know, two of my meals. So I was eating about 10 meals a week at hot dog on a stick. And this is when at 16, I decided to become a vegetarian and 16 in Wichita, Kansas as a vegetarian back in the 1980s. Um, my grandma would say things to me like, God put cattle on this earth for a reason, right? <laughs> or, or um, you know, people, I would tell people I was a vegetarian and they would say, oh, it's, but you can have chicken, right? I mean, just the, the mindset, it was pretty comical, but I need your listeners to know that I was living on cheese sticks draped in cornmeal, GMO corn that was dipped in massively oxidized fryer fat of canola oil with a five pound bag of sugar for every five gallons of um, lemonade we made, you know, by hand there, that I was sucking down like three big gulps of those a day. I was a volleyball player. I was super thin. I was super fit and I was super diabetic and had no idea, none, none, because I didn't look the part. None. Oh, for regular checkups or what well, you were young? No, no, because no one ever did. So the only checkup you would do at my age because of my hormonal history with PCOS and endometriosis and having to be put on birth control pills at 11, I would go in for my annual pap. That's it. They never ran a single lab on me Incredible. in that time. Not a single lab. They would do an exam and that was it. And they always said, like, even in the last few years, they were like, oh, you have this man, but it's just one of your cysts from your, from your, um, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So this mass on my right ovary that I could see and feel because I was thin enough was the cancering process and things like people don't know within with ovarian cancer that polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis are precursors to ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer actually starts in the uterus and the fallopian tubes. It does not start in the ovaries. I've learned a lot over the years. And so those are some of the ahas. Like now I can look back and go, oh my God, this was brewing for some time. Not until 1996 did I learn I had the BRCA gene. Not until um, 2006 did I get my epigenetics map to understand my body didn't know how to process hormones at all. And that the years of being on high dose birth control pills from basically age 11 until I was 21, until I was just shy of 20, because I stopped, they had me stop the pill at that time because they did recognize that that was probably contributing. Funny that we still have literature saying that women are protecting themselves from ovarian cancer by taking the pill. I highly disagree with that yes. for a variety of reasons we can go into, but all the things I've learned in hindsight, I sound so intelligent, like I have a magic crystal ball, but I had to learn it in real time with the rest of you while trying to keep myself alive along the journey. But it was just these crazy things that you just are like the little boiling frog in the pot of hot water that the, you know, you hop in and it's like, oh, it's kind of comfortable. And then it gets a little warmer. Like that's kind of like a little bath and like a little hot tub. And you don't know you're in trouble until you're boiling over. And that's what happened for me. And so I became really committed to understanding my boil over process. And then I became really interested in other people's boil over process. And that's what's led me to the work I do today in writing, lecturing, you know, teaching, 
researching the whole bit. Yes. It's such incredible work you do. And you're so passionate, which it's just, it's such a breath of fresh air. And I wanted to ask you about your book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, because a lot of people don't know what that is. What is the metabolic approach? Before I answer, I just realized I did not fully answer your first question, which was the dietary piece. So I kind of gave you the background of my standard American diet, living on hot dog on a stick. I was also a latchkey kid. We lived on total box processed foods. My mom would like shop at those um, discount grocery outlets where we'd buy like weird pink meat that, you know, like it's just, everything was like, she'd buy a 10, you know, a 50 pound bag of potatoes, a 50 pound bag of onions. We'd fry those up in margarine and bathe them in ketchup. That was our square meal. Cause that's what we could afford. She'd go to like the day, the day old donut things on the weekends was our treat, you know? So there was only fast food, only processed food, only high you know, white carbohydrate, no vegetables. My idea of a vegetable was a can of creamed corn or a can of green beans. Like that's what I was exposed to. And that was partially because of the socioeconomic status we were in, but also just latchkey kid. My mom worked three jobs just to keep a roof over our head. And so it was what we had to do. You know, and there's a lot of people on this planet that have to do it this way. It's not a, oh, yeah. it's not a critique. It's a reality today. Thankfully we have places like food banks and we have CSAs and farm, like little community farms and things that we actually can eat totally stellar with zero money on this planet today in those things. And I've found those resources over the years for myself as well for patients, but I moved when I learned of my diagnosis, the only information in 1991 that was out there was Gerson therapy. And I had an original book from Gerson from the 1940s, 1950s, and I was following his protocol, which his daughter, Charlotte, later on really changed that protocol pretty drastically. Um, I studied Gerson therapy in my early days of medical school, actually went and worked when it was, they had a clinic in Sedona, Arizona. And so I saw how she had deviated from her father's initial work and still does today. Um, Not a critique of that. That's not what this conversation is about. But the first um, several years of my diagnosis, I was uh, I then went from vegetarian, which was junk food, horrible vegetarianism of like iceberg lettuce and fried cheese sticks um, (laughs) and Jif peanut butter. That was pretty much my diet. Dill pickles, but the processed ones and milkshakes. That was my idea of a vegetarian diet at that time for years. And that's a lot of people now. A hundred percent. Right. And then I went to vegan. So I was already deeply, deeply malnourished from the very processed vegetarian with no vegetable diet that I ate for a long period of time. Then I moved into veganism, which took my, what little bit of of resources I had left and completely evaporated them. So it took away all vitamin D, B12, magnesium, zinc, selenium, um, uh, vitamin K. Those are your anti-cancer nutrients. And they're also replete on diets of vegan and vegetarianism. So I got even sicker in my nourishment for a period of years, but then I also became very dogmatic. And so I became one of those dogmatic vegans and was very much like the judgy McJudgerton of everyone else's um, choices of eating. I've been humbled by this process. So fast forward 30 years, every single diet cleanse you can possibly imagine, I tried on for size. Okay. What I learned over time for myself is that what works for me does not always work for me. I have to be willing to change when my body is requesting it to change. Number one, number two, what works for me does not necessarily work for you or somebody else. What is so cool is the time we live in today. We do not have to guess. You do not have to use dogma to drive your dietary decisions. You get to use your data. 
So there are epigenetic blueprints each of us are, are born with that makes us a natural vegetarian or a natural carnivore or a natural hunter gatherer or a natural you know, Mediterranean based diet just from that. There's also certain epigenetics that show that, Hey, you might need more help with how you digest your fats or your carbohydrates or your proteins based on certain epigenetic hiccups. Your labs tell me how well you're utilizing the nourishment you take in and points me into the direction of helping you utilize your nutrients even better if that's the case. And so we've gotten to this point today that no one even has to have the conversation around what diet is the right diet. The common thread denominator of an anti-cancer diet will always be real food, nutrient dense, clean. Okay. That should be the base no matter what. Okay. Um, should not be processed, should not be powder, should not be smoothies and all those things like that, all those little powder things that's processed guys. And so when we look at this, the next common foundation is low glycemic. I think everyone can agree to that today, no matter if you're coming from a vegan or a carnivore background or everything in between low carbohydrate is an absolute must. And you can achieve levels of metabolic flexibility with fasting, with time-restricted eating, with low-carb eating, with high-fat, low-carb eating, with you know certain nutrients. You can do, you can even do it with medications or supplements. I mean, there's ways that you can enhance your metabolic flexibility with tweaking your diet and supplements that you take and timing of how you eat your foods. So there's that piece. And then quality is so key. If you are going to eat animal protein, it must be clean. Otherwise you're eating a super fun site. And so um, Jess and I go into the metabolic approach to cancer very much about the the key of the quality. And we try to help bust the mythologies that people have around their ideas around dairy or meat or vegetables or whatnot, because you have people out there telling you that vegetables cause you problems. You have people out there telling you meat is the problem. The, The problem is the quality. Number one, the problem is also your own end of one experience. And the problem is also what is your therapeutic goal in that moment? Because food can be used like medicine, like a surgeon's scalpel. And so perhaps a diet you eat for around, say your chemo or in cleaning up after chemo or in particular tumor types is going to be very critical to eat in a certain way, just like it would be taking a supplement or a medication. And so there's ways that we can use food like medicine. And then there's ways we can just use food to nourish us and to prevent and support us. So I wanted to get back to that piece to answer that, that I've changed it all today. My diet is basically uh, cycling ketosis. I stay there pretty much always in a level of nutritional meaning low levels. I don't even have to try anymore because I've gotten so metabolically flexible. I fast every day, no less than 13 hours. I fast 16 to 18 hours, two or three times a week. Once a month, I do a three-day water fast. Twice a year, I do a five to 10-day water fast. That's been my routine for 20 some years. And it works well for me. It's the way my body takes out the garbage. The food choices that I make tend to be seasonal, local, regional, and very, very clean, high quality. Sometimes my body needs and wants more um, animal protein. Sometimes it does not. I listen to what my body's needs are, but I look at the labs to give me that data as well. So that shows like from the process I've been through, I've learned a lot about this as well as had the feedback from thousands of other patients and what works well or doesn't work so well for them. And then we guide them accordingly. Yes. And So the ketogenic diet, if you can go a little bit into that, because I know there's a lot of controversy with high protein, high fat, and that that's not always good for cancer. So, yeah, well, here's the, here's the bit where I tell people is ketogenic diet 
is a tool. A state of ketosis is a physiologic state. Being metabolically flexible is where all of us should strive. It doesn't matter how you get there. As I mentioned, you can get into metabolic flexibility, meaning if you are metabolically flexible, if your body knows how to be a dual hybrid engine where it burns glucose, where it needs to burn glucose, carbohydrates, where it needs to burn carbohydrates and fats, where it needs to burn fats as we were metabolically wired since the beginning of time, um, then your body should go in and out of that, those tools as needed. So if you're metabolically healthy, metabolically flexible, you should be showing some trace ketones on your first morning urine just by fasting 13 hours. If you're not, you may need to push it a little bit. You might need to fast a little bit longer. You can get into a state of metabolic flexibility or a state of physiologic ketosis by eating a ketogenic diet, which is high fat, low to normal protein levels, and very low carbohydrate, typically less than 20 grams of carbohydrate, somewhere in there around 70 to 90 grams of, uh, or 70 grams of uh, your fat and 10 grams of, like you, you move the scale of what we call a one-to-one to a four-to-one ratio. And so it can, it can be anywhere from like 50 less to less grams of carbohydrate it can be anywhere from like, you know, 30% of your diet to less of uh, protein. And it can be anywhere from 70 to 90% of your diet as fats, depending on your goals and the patient's needs and what you're going for. So that you can do with a diet, but you can also give off ketones by fasting longer. So 16, 24, 36, 48, 52, like those hours you go into ketosis easily after 24 hours and more so easily. If you become metabolically flexible, you can also get into ketosis with certain glucophage medications like metformin. Even um, you can lower insulin levels with things like berberine. You can even get into ketosis with exogenous ketones, ketone esters or ketone salts. So there are multiple roads to Rome to get you into a state of metabolic flexibility. And the diet is just one way, but I've had folks who were eating just low carb, normal protein, normal um, fat. And that was enough to do it. We all have a different need or a different thermostat in which we function in that arena. And so you have to play with it for yourself. If you're someone who has to have a snack before you go to bed, you're metabolically broken. If you're someone who wakes up in the middle of the night and you're hungry, you have to eat something, you're metabolically broken. If you have to eat the second you jump out of bed in the morning, you're metabolically broken. If you get hangries, if you get shaky, if you get moody, or dizzy after four hours without eating, you're metabolically broken. People need to hear that. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> it's huge. And it doesn't care. It's not even about what you're eating. It's a fat. And so that's where you're going to want to go. Check your insulin levels, check your hemoglobin A1C, which is the average of your blood sugars over the last three months. Glucose means absolutely nothing. It's such a transient, just bullshit, excuse me, factor. I don't even look at it unless it's in the context of the whole, but insulin and A1Cs don't lie. And so we should all be, all of us, cancer or not, should have our A1Cs under five. Our insulins, all of us should be under five. If you're dealing with cancer, you should probably be a little bit lower than that. And they're not telling us that. Heck no, you have, you have to pay for that test yourself out of pocket to go and have that done. Cause your doctors are like, if your glucose is fine and for them, fine is under 120 when it's above 80, I'm concerned. Um, but if it's under 120, they're like, well, we're not going to test this because insurance won't cover it until your glucose is high. By the time your glucose goes high, you're a building engulfed in flames, mm. right? And so it's crazy of how people, you know, don't, they just don't know what they don't know. 
So we want to work people towards that awareness and then testing and digging deeper and then adjusting their diets accordingly. So if you have someone who's vegetarian or vegan and they are eating too many carbohydrates, they can adjust their vegetarian or vegan diet to fit into a metabolic flexibility program. It's, it's, you know, if you're, if you're a carnivore and you're getting too much protein, you're going to have high blood sugars. It goes both ways. So you can have high blood sugars meaning vegan. You can have high blood sugars meaning carnivore. But I had a client who was eating meat and wanted to lower her blood sugar and it was high. Yeah. I'm like naturally inclined to a vegetarian diet. I would never have to eat meat if I never wanted to again. It's just, it's not something I crave, right? But my body is like, you need it for other reasons. My husband could be a carnivore. Like he so could just rock the carnivore world, but he has particular epigenetic hiccups, ACSL1 and 2, um, ACAT. He's got a um, APOA2. They mean Greek to probably most of you, but those SNPs means that if he eats a steak, his body thinks he just sat down and ate a candy bar or a big plate of mashed potatoes, right? Whereas if I ate a steak, my blood sugars drop drastically. His spike, mine drops. Our genetic variability is very real and our needs around it are different. So as we're younger, we need less protein. As we age, we need more. So basically we're supposed to limit our protein intake from about 20 to 60 and then spike it up. So you have high protein needs in your childhood and you have high protein needs in your elder because that's how you repair your, your body. That's how you keep your muscle mass. That's how you repair your mitochondria. In the middle, we have a lot of wiggle room. So we can sort of range. So when people like I could, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, I was a, I was a vegan until I was about 45 and then all hell broke loose. Well, because your body um, was auto digesting itself. It was breaking down its protein stores. Our, our anti-aging effect is in our mitochondria and in our muscle mass. And so you become sarcopenic if you're, if you're starving your body of much needed protein at certain developmental phases of your life. So what age would you say yeah. that you would need more protein? Now I'm in my 50s. 50s. Yeah. 45-ish is when they say we start to amp it up. So I think about the perimenopausal window. That's when I get women off of cardio and onto muscle and onto weight training and high intensity interval training specifically. So less cardio, you need a very different thing. You need to start building your muscle mass, which you also need that protein for. And it's, that's a good time to do it. That's where you can get away with being like a marathon runner and a vegan in your twenties and thirties, but it's your needs will change. So perimenopause, those start to change because also our perimenopause symptoms are around oxytocin, insulin, and cortisol. So when we're under high stress, we need more protein. When we've had physiologic stress, we need more protein. Surgery requires more protein, post-surgery recovery. Oxytocin, it's like we need to connect, we need to bond with each other more so. That stabilizes our hormones. And then our insulin, we need to probably eat more protein and less carbs because we're tending to be self-soothing with more carbs during these transitional years as well. So those moments, pregnancy often needs more protein. Recovery from illness needs more protein and growing children need more, more protein. Those are the typical windows. Unless you're like a hardcore athlete who's in hardcore training, you might need some more protein. This basic thing about wherever you might be breaking down or utilizing massive amounts of energy is where you might need a little bit more protein. But in the cancer world, you got to be careful with protein because it can feed mTOR. It can feed a very specific insulin growth factor, which can be a tumor growth factor. So we tend to go low to normal levels. So 0.8 grams per kilogram of protein is the typical amount we recommend for a cancer patient, someone who's actively cancering. That's low protein diet. 
Yeah. So most people are eating one, anywhere from 1.2 to two grams of, of protein per kilogram or grams per kilogram of a quote unquote healthy protein diet. So a cancer patient, if they're eating a true ketogenic diet for cancer, they're actually eating low protein. And so most of the people who are following a ketogenic diet are having conversations and concerns around using it for cancers because they're thinking Atkins or what we call dirty keto or internet keto. There are different animals of types of keto you need to eat for cancer versus the average population. And so you want to make sure you're working with someone who's been trained in that. If you're going to use that as a dietary intervention, you need to work with someone who's been trained in how to use it in the cancer population. Please don't follow some social media expert out there doing this, or you're going to end up in a very dangerous camp. Yes. Just like, right. And just like there's people out there telling you, you need your raw food, vegan diet to get you through this. Um, for the love of God, that's just as dangerous. Okay. So the, the, the diminished, like I've just nailed off those nutrients earlier, the B vitamins, the magnesium, the zinc, the selenium, those are so critical for you. Yes. You can get those from your diet as a vegan or a vegetarian, but to get those right nutrients, you have to eat a heck of a lot more carbohydrate to get your protein needs met. So that means a lot more grains and legumes to get that protein quotient required for simple energy production and body repair, which by nature means a heck of a lot more carbohydrate. So it's, you can do a, a low glycemic diet as a vegetarian. It's hard mm. and it will still require fish oil and vitamin D and some B12, which are animal derived. So you have to kind of get your head around that and be okay with that. Um, I've yet to see a vegan and I know I, I upset people all the time, but I'm looking at labs. I'm not looking at dogma. And this is a person who was a vegan for seven years, please. So, right. Right. Labs. I'm looking at your epigenetics. I'm looking at how your body is responding. And it might've been a perfect diet to kind of get you cleaned up and, you know, change your, your, cause any big shift to the diet is going to be helpful for even a short period of time. Like if you were vegan and now you're carnivore, that'll probably help you for a little bit. If you were carnivore, now you're vegan, that'll probably help you for a little bit. But as far as the long game, most of it, we're omnivores, right? We need a little bit of something mixed in there and our needs will like in the omnivore world, maybe you can get by with a couple eggs a week, maybe a serving of fish a week. Some people might need a lot more. Everyone needs different things. And so bringing that full circle to the metabolic approach to cancer, Jess and I realized that the best way to hit multiple targets of the hallmarks of cancer, multiple targets to the terrain drivers of cancer is through food, is through nutrition. And it is the metabolic fuel that fuels your mitochondria to help your body induce apoptosis, the cancer cell kill, which mitochondria are in charge of, to you know, create energy, to repair damaged tissue, to repair and protect DNA. It's, it hits all these places. And so food really is the base camp of that. So when I hear people say diet doesn't matter, or they told me to eat whatever I want, just don't lose weight or all these things, that is the most dangerous medical advice you can give to anybody. Right. And you hear it all the time. It's so frustrating. Yes, absolutely. And so where we get in trouble and where people tune out and turn off is when they get dogmatic about it. So let's use your data. Let's look at your levels. Let's look at your labs. Let's look at your um, homocysteine levels and your MCV, MCH, which gives me a, a nice 
idea of what your B vitamins are doing. Let me look at your vitamin D level. Let me look, I can even look at a vitamin A and K on a, on a nutrient profile. I can look at RBC, your red blood cell magnesium levels. I can look at your red blood cell zinc levels and selenium levels. We can look at those on a basic lab and tell you if you are, if you are making enough of those things from your food. So the average person who goes to a primary care physician, can they get these tests or no? They can't, they can go and request them, but we've become, thank God, one of the biggest blessings of COVID is that we've opened up the market of direct consumer lab testing. So people can literally go online, like personallabs.com or direct to, you know, directlabs.com. There's a ton of them now. They're all out there. You can go on, unless you live in the state of New York, you're going to have to go over the border to like Connecticut, you know, <laughs> something, but you can definitely in almost every single state in the United States, go to a direct to consumer lab, go online, order exactly what you want because it's a cash base. It's going to be far less than um, what you, if you'd, if you'd gone into your doctor and had them order it and the insurance ended up re- denying it, not covering it, you'd probably pay 10 times what you would just going to a direct consumer. Cause you don't know what the insurance is going to cover or not cover. They don't see these things as important labs to cover. So I tell folks it's worth investing. It's worth putting on your credit card, getting some airline miles and going in there and running these tests, save up for some of these things, because then, you know, then you don't have to guess. And then you don't have to get caught up on the influencers out there in either camp. They're telling you how to do this for yourself. You need to know what you need for yourself. And so between the labs, between the questionnaire that Jess and I have in the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, we look at the 10 major drivers of a cancering or a health process. So is it your epigenetics? Is it your metabolic, you know, like the fuel in your, in your gas tank? Is it your environmental exposures? Is it your microbiome? Is it your immune system dysfunction? Is it inflammation? Is it angiogenesis or oxygenation of your tissues? Is it hormone balance? Is it stress and circadian rhythm issues? Or is it mental emotional Those are the 10 drops in the bucket that we're assessing with that questionnaire that helps you also recognize your own drivers. And then you could go straight, like, let's say you have three of those 10 that are, that all like are eights out of 10. You go and read those three chapters and those three chapters are going to tell you what labs will help you elucidate whether you are on the right path with correcting those imbalances or not. And then you can keep going and adjusting accordingly. We use this as basically a a reference manual for you to go in, check on yourself, do your own audit, you know, do your own exploration and then guide yourself. You really don't initially need, I mean, we tell people start this. And then if you come up with something you can't answer for yourself or order for yourself, see someone who's trained in this, see someone who's trained in terrain thinking, global thinking about you than just you being a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So do you, in the book, do you have people that, that could be seen to look at these labs after they're taken? We do on my website, drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. And then Jess Higgins Kelly, my co-author, she has her own company called Remission Nutrition. Love it. Love that name. And she really teaches. um, She actually has an entire institute, um, Oncology Nutrition Institute, which are for nutritionists who've gone through or anybody who has a medical license that can then go into this postgraduate education for oncology specific nutrition, because there is no training in oncology specific nutrition. And so you have all of these RD nutritionists at cancer centers that are being paid to toe the line of industry driven nutrition recommendations. 
not based on science, not based on data, not based on the individual, not based on labs, just based on rhetoric and the idea of pushing a certain agenda. So what ONI does is they teach you to understand how to really assess someone's nutritional status and how to best serve them. So her um, website, um, Oncology Nutrition Institute and Remission Nutrition, both have graduates of her program. So they are great people who just work in the nutrition realm. On the Dr. Nasha site, I have physicians who have gone through my training that takes them beyond nutrition. I mean, nutrition is part of it, but above and beyond on how to test and assess and address each person and how to support them with standard of care and with an integrative approach. And then we also are getting ready to list our first graduates from our advocacy training program, which is a patient. These And these are all people like you and I, Haley, that have themselves gone through cancer or helped a loved one go through this process and utilized a metabolic approach to cancer, had a great experience that said, I want to learn how to do this for myself, for my family, and for others. We should have about 150 doctors trained through this and about 300 patient advocates trained from this. And so these are starting to blanket the globe. And so you are finding more and more because it was landing on my shoulders for years and then a handful of my colleagues for years. And we were being booked out a year and people were literally dying in our waiting rooms. And we were like, we have to do something different. So that's where these educational platforms started. The book is a starting point for everybody. Um, we're building a hospital um, in Arizona so that I heard about that. That's incredible. Yeah. And that will become a place. It will become a place because it's an event center. It's a destination. It's a hospital. It's a wellness center. It's a time. I mean, it's, it's everything because we're trying to show people how to live healthy on an unhealthy planet. And it's a nonprofit hospital and research Institute so that we're collecting all of this data that I'm sharing with you in real time, because we know our outcomes are better. We know what it is, but the quote unquote powers that be, they don't buy it yet. So we're building the data platform to collect all the data, interpret the data and give the information from a objective perspective versus me just saying, yep, the patient did better. Um, Well, even when the patient's standing there showing them, yep, I did better. Just like me 30 years out saying, yep, I'm still alive, despite you telling me otherwise. And you still don't believe that the evidence clearly isn't enough for you. We're collecting the data to show all of this. So we're taking in tissue assays and liquid blood biopsies and epigenetics and blood tests and functional blood tests and 54 pages of intake questionnaires um, and the patient's chronology, their biography that led to their biology and their diet diaries and their macronutrient counts and their wearable like HRV technologies and their blood ketones and glucose levels. All of that's going into the database to start to show the correlations of what makes this person's outcome different than this person's outcome. What were the drivers of this person's process and what were the keys to get them back into balance? So we know clinically what that looks like, but to scale it and to report on it and to implement change in the system, we have to have the data collection out there. That's just the way our world works. And that's because I'm a data junkie anyway, I'm good with that, but we're building this in real time. So we're literally flying, like building the airplane while we're flying it as kind of like I was, and you were 24 years for you, 30 years for me. It's like, okay, they're telling me I'm going to die. I'm just going to keep my head moving forward. I'm just going to keep learning. I'm just going to keep picking up a new piece, put it in my basket. If that fits great, if not take it back out, put something new in, just keep going one foot in front of the other. That one foot in front of the other is 30 years later where the dream I had 28 years ago, this hospital is finally 
starting to come to fruition. The database we've been working on for 10 years is finally coming to fruition. The that is training, amazing. It's huge. We're not me changing. It's all you guys. It's you and your listeners and the patients, because I can tell people to the cows come home as a researcher, as a clinician, what works and doesn't work. They're not interested in that for me. But guess what? The patient's experience and the patient's demand for a different experience, that's what changes things. So it is all of you that are creating the, the demand on a, on a different, a different approach. That is so exciting to me. I mean, there, you know, it's finally going to change. I mean, how long ago did Nixon declare the war on cancer and nothing has changed 50 years. I just celebrated my 50th birthday, my 30 years out from my cancer. diagnosis. Happy birthday. Thank you. And the 50th year of the war on cancer, which was in 1971 is when we, um, you know, said, here we go. Hmm. You know, and then what just happened, what last month we're now in this, we've re-resurrected the precision medicine moonshot cancer program. And yet it is exactly more of the same. You're like, you're still looking for one target with one treatment that takes an average of 17 years before it leaves the bench to get to the bedside. We have too many people that will die waiting for that data to come out. And so I applaud you for wanting to make this happen, but you're not doing it correctly or fast enough. And you're not doing it in a way that says there are multiple triggers for this and they all have to be directed at once. It's not a chemotherapy deficiency. It's not a targeted therapy deficiency. It's not, you know, there isn't one diet or one supplement or one treatment or one chemo that's going to work. It has to be evaluated one person at a time in real time with all those variables taken into account in order to make a difference. Uh, right. I mean, it's a multifactorial disease. And, and I think a lot of people think, oh, I had bad luck. I, I got cancer. They don't realize that it's years and years of, of things we've been surrounded by and, and what we're feeding our bodies and all that. Yeah. And there's still researchers really well-known like Vogelstein and his team at, I believe they're at Harvard, um, are out there still saying that they, they but if, I think 2011, I think 2017, I think they just put out another article calling cancer just a Russian roulette game and a game of bad luck. And it frustrates me to no end because they're literally down one end of the hallway. And at the other end of the hallway, you have the metabolic camp. And this is the um, Dr. Coe's and the Dr. Pete Peterson's who are the folks saying this is not a somatic mutation disease. This is a disease of our metabolic function or metabolic health. And they're literally saying this isn't bad luck. This is driven by dietary lifestyle choices, exposures to stressors, to toxicants, to lytics, you know, to all the things that are impacting our mitochondrial health. And yet what I'm trying to help people understand is they're both correct. If the mitochondria are damaged because of what information we're putting into the body, putting in, on, and around us at any given time, that's even your food, that's your water, that's your light exposures, but it's also the people you surround yourself with, right? We are, we are absolutely uh, the expression of the five closest people around us. So if you hang out with toxic people, you're toxic. It's kind of simple. Okay. And so they're, you know, they're saying like, oh, but that's the driver, but guess what? If those mitochondria are damaged, then you no longer have the protection of the DNA the gene. And so the somatic people, the, the Vogelstein saying, oh, it's just bad luck. They just aren't looking back far enough behind what comes up to and pushes that gene over the cliff to look like it's just bad luck. So they're both correct. 
there's a combination of those. And we're still learning every day. We don't, every time we think we know the answer, more questions arise and more answers to be made. Um, but, but that's the piece I want your listeners to listen to. It isn't bad luck. We are far more powerful than we are led to believe. There is far more that we can do. And there's far more that needs to be done in the, in our future generations, because we're having younger and younger people being diagnosed with cancer every day. And in my own career, um, the average age of cancer, when I graduated medical school is 68 years old. This was considered a disease of the elderly, of the aging. The average age today is 48 years old. That's in just about 20, 22 years time. Um, the expectation is that the World Health Organization says that cancer rates will double worldwide by 2030. The fastest growing cancers today are glioblastoma in those under the age of 35. We've now found direct drivers of this through air pollution. So there was a big study out in the British Medical Journal um, a year and a half or two years ago about that. We're just getting exposed massively to air quality issues, especially in the last two years as we've all been holed up in our, you know, in our homes from COVID. And then the other fastest growing cancer and section under the age of 25 is colorectal cancer. How could you ever think that your colon has nothing to do, a colorectal cancer has nothing to do with what you eat? Mm. And look at our food system and what we're put doing to our food and how we've changed it so drastically in the last 150 years, but definitely in the last 50 years. It's unbelievable to me that no one is putting those, is correlating any changes here. I'm so glad you mentioned that about the colorectal cancer because someone in our community, unfortunately, just passed away and everyone's talking about it. It was a very quick, she found out a few months ago and now she passed away and everyone's saying, you know, get your colonoscopy, get your colonoscopy, which is, you know, yeah, get your colonoscopy, but what about prevention? And it's like, why? Like that's me, like me at 19 shy of 20 saying, and why? Do I have in stage cancer at this age? Like why? Cause they're telling me it was just bad luck. And they're telling me it was X, Y, and Z, like all the different things I've learned. Mine was so not just that mine was massive trauma, massive sexual abuse, massive trauma in my upbringing, total security issues, food security, poverty, abuse, trauma, you name it. I experienced it. The food choices we made and had to make from social economic standpoints, but also just what I chose as a teenager, right? All of those pieces, the living near Air Force bases and four super fun sites. When I put in the zip code of where I grew up, I lived in that area and looking at all the people who died or had cancers or parents have died in my circle around me and my age range. Very interesting to look at that, to then move off and live. Basically, I lived on a big slack pile of uranium tailings in Colorado in the first year of my diagnosis. And it's like, huh. And then to look at the EWG water site and look at just in my town of Dario, Colorado, we have seven known carcinogens in our city drinking water. And people think their Brita and their fridge is enough. It's like, Oh my God, like so many, and all the years that I was on birth control, that was extremely high dose of birth control and knowing my SNPs now that I know, knowing I had BRCA issues, which is all about methylation and I don't methylate well, like all the things I was kidding. There were literally on those 10 drops in the bucket, every drop was stimulated for me. And so when people tell me I was healthy until I got cancer, I just guffaw at them because it's impossible. So when we hear, oh, it's such a travesty, it's so-and-so got cancer. Oh, how did they, they, they ate well and they ran and it, 
you have, there's so much more. And what we do in this book is help people understand their blind spots, because of course, if you knew you would change things. And so the hope is that this book actually reaches people before their diagnosis. So my hope is that someone's family member gets diagnosed, they read it to support their family member, but they start to apply it themselves and it changes their outcomes as well as that of the loved one they're caring for. But this is where it begins, Haley, is we have to start to pull our heads out of the sand. We have to open our eyes wide. We have to look around us. We have to ask questions. We have to engage differently. Prevention is not putting a tube camera up your butt or smashing your breast and radiating it. That is not preventative medicine. That is screening medicine. And you can screen with that, but you need to do other audits and, and questions of what's going on in your body. And simple labs can tell you a lot. Simple questionnaires can tell you a lot. Looking at your database, putting your zip code in and saying, what super fun sites are near me? Put in my zip code. What water quality do I have around me? Put in your zip code. What air quality do I have around me? Put in my zip code. So people who like live on parks and near hospitals and golf courses, you are a giant toxic soup of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, like just some of the worst cases in my Sorry to interrupt, but what if your family members play golf a lot? It, it yeah. really does worry me. It, it should. It should. Because what I tell those folks, if they, if they live on the golf course, I tell them to move. If they go to a golf course, I have them leave their clothes in the garage. I have them sauna and take extra vitamin C and glutathione. And I have them shower the second they get home. You do not want to bring that stuff in the house. You do not want to have that stuff touching your skin because you're walking on that and you're kicking it up and you're absorbing it through the largest organ of absorption and elimination on your body. You want to also have those folks get their glyphosate levels tested. Detox Project is one, HCHRI is another, and Great Plains Labs is another that you can get your, your uh, glyphosate levels tested and know um, because then you know, oh my word, this is big and we know that it destroys our immune system. It's known as a carcinogen now. It's like how, and this is ubiquitous on the planet today. And so you can't even eat organic anymore to avoid it because it's in your rainwater and it has a two mile spread in water, soil, and air. So if you are at this beautiful organic farm, but two miles down the road is a golf course, you bet your bottom dollar, you've got glyphosate poisoning. Mm. You know, all the organic vineyards in Northern California are all contaminated with glyphosate. There was a study that came out on that just a few years ago. You become an expert in, you become an advocate, you become an activist. You become the person out there trying to get the chemicals off your kids' soccer fields, right? Which talk about, I mean, my God, if your kids are sports people, they're getting so much exposure yes. um, in those environments. And I know because I test these kids. I see these kids all the time when I'm working with so much um, leukemia, lymphoma, sarcomas, you know, all these crazy cancer types and young folks. It's like, well, let me, I start taking a history. Uh, and you're like, yeah, I'm on a slack pile. You live on a golf course. Your kids play a soccer, you know, it's like. How hard? Because the parents are they're doing the best they can. They're like, oh, but my kids being active and they're out there and you're feeding them Cheerios every day. Highest glyphosate, like oats are one of the worst offenders of glyphosate toxicity. I know I say these things and freak people out, but frankly, you guys have to wake the F up. I agree. I'm so glad you're saying all this. I mean, people are getting such value. You can throw me under the bus. I'll say it because <laughs> I'm not saying anything that's not, I mean, our book has over 300 references right? The databases that are out there are building all the time. You can now put in your own zip code and basically know what toxicant carcinogenic exposures you're exposed to on a regular basis. And we put our heads in the sand and we think if we just don't think about them or look at them, we will be okay. But when one in two men and one in 2.4 women will have cancer in their lifetime, you got to do something about this now. 
Yes. I mean, this is a pandemic. This is the pandemic. 1600 people die every day in the United States from cancer Uh, every day. And we don't talk about that. No, we don't talk about that. And we don't talk about what can be done differently. We don't talk about how do we educate? How do we empower? How do we prevent? As I said before, the only cure, the only cure is prevention. And once you get it, then you have to work even harder to create a lifestyle that maintains this in your body for decades to come. And you can't deviate from that because you see that it will pick up momentum again. If you feed it the wrong information, the wrong data, the wrong input, it will be off and running again. I'm so glad you said that because people say to me all the time, Haley, oh my gosh, you're so neurotic about what you do and what you eat. And And I tell them I have to work harder than the average person. And maybe, you know, other people, they should be working hard too. Right. We have a little more compelling. We were compelled. And Haley, I'm going to guess by even looking at you, it doesn't feel like hard work. It might seem neurotic to other people, but I am such a foodie. I travel the world. I have such joy out of finding high quality, you know, food and farmers and ranchers, the relationships that I'm building with people that are just as like, I don't ever feel like I'm going without. In fact, I feel like I just take in so much deep nourishment and someone else's thoughtful, intentional process of the way they built, you know, grew their food and how that food nourishes me. It feels like this beautiful, energetic, you know, reciprocal process ongoing. I never feel like I'm missing out ever. I love that. Are you listening people? (laughs) Please. Oh my goodness, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, this was so wonderful. I have one question that so many people ask me about fruit. So I, I know we're backtracking, but I just wanted to ask you about fruit. I mean, I know berries are low glycemic, but people worry about some of the seasonal fruit, watermelon, that kind of stuff. Well, and again, let's test your labs. Let's look at your hemoglobin A1C, your insulin, your, your insulin growth factor. If they're high, you'll need to pull fruit altogether for a while. Once you become stable, you should be able to use in moderation seasonal low glycemic fruit. So my husband, though, unfortunately, he looks at a raspberry and his blood sugar spikes. I could eat a pint of them and nothing happens. We all have biochemical individuality. There is no, um, there's no evidence refuting the fact that unfortunately fructose very high is definitely a driver of cancer processes. So a lot of the people out there promoting high fruit diets, um, they're actually causing some harm because they're high in fructose, which can really be a major insulin disruptor and a major insulin growth factor. So if you don't believe me, don't, you know, don't, don't just take my word for it, go test yourself and see, you know, maybe you have enough amylase that you can break this down and utilize it, but most of us don't. So look at your triglycerides. If they're inking up above 90, if your blood, if your A1C is above five, if your glucose is revving above 80, 85, if your insulin is above five, you can't have those. You can't have fruit, at least not for a while until you are more metabolically flexible and stable. And until you're out of kind of the cancer wilderness of the, 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 the massive concern of growth, you've got to limit those. Um, fruit itself wasn't bad, but there was a time when we had to work harder for it. We put out a lot more energy to take it in and the fruit of the apples we ate back then were sour, tiny, little bitter, you know, tart apples, not these giant sugar bombs. Um, it, again, the seasonal, like you, you shouldn't be eating a watermelon in the winter in Colorado should be eating a, you know, like just those, it's like, you think about even just like local seasonal regional, like, was that ever even part of your human existence? And so it's funny. I can eat a papaya down here in Mexico. Um, that's non-GMO that we grow ourselves 
because by the way, all papaya is now GMO in the U S which is really unfortunate. Uh Um, But, but down here, it's like, I can still get access to the non GMO papaya. It does not do anything to my blood sugar. But if I had a piece of papaya back home, my blood sugar goes crazy. So I'm like local, is it seasonal? Is it regional? Is it the GMO? Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I'm a living laboratory and I'm always curious and I'm always exploring that. So it's kind of fun. Like when you start to wear things like continuous glucose monitors, or you're doing your glucose and your ketone blood testing on a regular basis, you start to learn what works well for you and what doesn't. It's huge. Like for me, food doesn't affect my blood sugar much anymore, but a bad night's sleep does. Right. So I know I'm like, Oh man, if I have two nights, bad sleep, I'm my insulin's a mess. And how often do you test that? I test my insulin every six months. Okay. But I know I check my glucose and my ketones regularly. If my ketones drop and my glucose goes up, I know I'm under stress and I know my sleep's been off. Okay. So that's my cheat man's version, but I do check my insulin um, twice a year just because I have that um, with ovarian, at least my form of ovarian cancer was very insulin driven, very insulin growth factor driven. And so I watched that pretty darn close for my own process. Okay. Gotcha. Oh, you gave us so many nuggets. I am so appreciative of your time. And I'm going to quickly go into random round and I hope that's okay. I hope you have time, but we'll just do it quickly. Absolutely. So fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. Uh, Freedom to me is a state of mind. The last show you binged and loved. Ozark. Oh my goodness. People are like, you, this like light being living. Oh, it's addictive. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) My dad keeps telling me I have to watch it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. (laughs) When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Mm. Well, first I get curious. I want to know why. And I want to know if I'm really in danger. That's one of my questions. But then breath is what will bring me back. Yeah. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, that's so tough. I have so many different ones for different reasons. I'd like to speak with William S. Coley, who's kind of considered the modern uh, father of immunology. Um, So there's that side, but then I'd also love to just hang out with, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I can't think of her name. Uh, Mary Oliver, the poet, not Mary Oliver, because her poet, her poem, The Journey. So, so has been sort of like my my go-to for many, many years for this. And I'm sad that we lost her just a couple of years ago. I always hoped and dreamed that I'd get to meet with her and tell her how much that poem touched my life. Oh, I'm going to look that up. Please do. It's amazing. My goodness. What is your favorite go-to snack? Oh, an avocado with lime and sea salt. Mm. Good, healthy fats, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's one simple thing that brings you joy? Oh, my pet's. So much. Oh my gosh. Little, little fur, fur babies and complete unconditional practice and unconditional love. Yeah. What's on your nightstand? Oh my gosh. I knew you had mentioned you're going to ask this question. So I am sort of schizophrenic. My nightstand is covered with medical journals and articles I'm trying to read. Typically right now it has the Townsend letter the well-being journal. Um, it also has on it, because then I mix it up. I'm reading a David Sedaris book right now, which I can't think of the title of. It's a late compilation. He's a hilarious, hilarious writer. He's the This American, is it This American Life? Thank you, somebody. He's done a bunch of hilarious reading. So he makes me laugh. And then I'm reading another one called For the Love of Soil, which is by um, Nicole Masters. And she is a regenerative ag farm goddess. And I got to meet her in person at a region ag farm health conference in December. And 
her book, the way she speaks about soil on the outside of us is how I think about and approach the soil on the inside of us. So it's like having a conversation with myself. It's really beautifully done. So those are what I'm reading and they're all very, very different. (laughs) Very, very Wonderful. What is your favorite form of exercise? Stand up paddle boarding. I love it. I love it because it's like, I don't feel like I'm exercising. I hate exercising. So for me, it's got to just be fun and joyful. Mm. And then the other thing is walking. I really love walking. I love taking it all in um, the world around me. So it's for me, when I walk, it's more, it's not like a anything hardcore. It's more like a med- walking meditation for me. I just started paddleboarding a few years ago and it is so fun. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> it's such a good workout. I mean, it's really everything. I feel it in my arms. That's for sure. Totally. Yep. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Oh my gosh. I go, I do a gratitude list every single day. Um, right now I'm super grateful for the fact that I get to live in a tropical environment. I'm a natural sunflower. And for years I fought my tendency living in Colorado, which I would made the best of my winters, but I definitely need my sun, salt, sand, sea fix. And I get to live in that type of environment now year round. And it really makes a difference in my quality of life and my health. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. Ah, sounds perfect. (laughs) Where can people find out more? And I know you mentioned your website, but let's say it again so people can hear. Sure. If you want to know about kind of my writings and my speaking and a pile of references and resources and cool podcasts and things I've done like this, you can go to drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. If you want to learn more about what we're building with the training of the physicians and the patient advocates, and you want to know more about this hospital, this nonprofit hospital and our data platform and all the other cool stuff we're doing in Southeast Arizona, you can go to mtih.org, which is metabolic terrain institute of health you could google that too and that will take you there and follow us we have a lot getting ready to happen in the first quarter of 2022 well thank you so much dr nasha this was such a joy and so valuable for the listeners and myself so i can't thank you enough thank you so much i hope they're okay i know i threw a lot at you Please, if folks have questions or thoughts, they're welcome to email over at drnasha.com to the info and it will get to me. I'll try and do any kind of tidying up of clarifying questions for you or your listeners, Haley. But but I know I'm throwing a lot at folks and I know people always hear me kind of tell the doom and gloom, but I never give you the doom and gloom without there being a solution. And so that is, this is a solution-driven process, not a problem-driven process. So I hope that folks will get curious to just do the inquiry and find the right resource to support themselves. Yeah, this book, everyone has to get it and read it. Thank you so much, Haley. Appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.